vision. You're thinking, why did I crawl out of bed to listen to this this morning? Well, let's find out. We're going to look at the book of Ecclesiastes. We've been looking uh, at Ecclesiastes. It's an ancient and profound reflection on the biggest questions and frustrations of human life. It's not always a happy book or an easy one, but it's always an honest one. Uh, This week, Solomon, or the teacher, if you will, he's going to zoom in on one part of human experience that is truly tragic, and that's the issues of justice, injustice, or oppression. And it would be much easier to not think about this or to talk about it, Uh, but the Bible is not into whitewashing reality. It's not what it does. Uh, There's an episode of the popular TV show, MASH. From uh, If you don't know it, it's a 1970s show about an army medical unit in the Korean War. And in this particular episode, one of the soldiers, uh, a private named Danny, shoots himself in the foot to get out of frontline combat. And the chaplain, uh, Father Mulcahy, goes to talk with him about his choice. And the conversation basically ends up with Danny scolding Father Mulcahy for not knowing anything about frontline warfare. He tells him, Father, with all due respect, we don't have anything to talk about. Let's face it, you have no idea what it's like up there. Well, Father Mulcahy takes his advice to heart, and against orders, he goes up to the front lines to help retrieve a wounded soldier uh, and bring him back, performing an emergency tracheotomy via radio instructions along the way. And when he returns to the army camp, the whole camp hears about his bravery, and he goes back to talk to Danny. He says, you know what? I think it gave me a little taste of what it was like for you up there. Will you talk to me now? Will you listen to me? And he does. They talk. You know, the Bible is not a book of golden spiritual platitudes lobbed at you from the untouchable safety of heaven. It's a book that gets its hands dirty. It deals with the scary, messy realities of this life. It's on the front lines of human existence with us entrench warfare. And so it deserves a hearing. It deserves a listen. God sees us. And for reasons we'll talk about later, God even gets us. He understands the pain of injustice or oppression. And so we ought to listen. So this passage, it's going to point out to us the reality of injustice. It wants to explore the roots of injustice and then just hint at the restoration of justice. So the reality of injustice, the roots of injustice, and then finally, the restoration of justice. First, the reality of injustice, verse 16 of chapter 3. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. So the teacher begins to look at places in the world where things ought to be right. He looks to the courts where, you know, as for a society to function properly, there must be justice. And even there, in the courts, he finds wickedness. 4,000 years ago, this is 4,000 years later, have things really changed all that much in the world? You can look on the FBI's website and find examples of entire county court systems where corruption was rampant. So rampant that the state couldn't deal with it, they had to call in an organization as big and skilled as the FBI to infiltrate the county, gather evidence, and ultimately indict crooked judges and lawyers and clerks and police officers. Or you can read about cases like 14-year-old George Stinney in Alkaloo, South Carolina, 
who in 1944 was arrested for the murder of two young girls, interrogated without a lawyer or a parent there, given a three-hour trial, found guilty, and then executed. South Carolina vacated his conviction posthumously after reviewing the case in 2014. Justice was a little late. And then there's the TV miniseries called What About Pam, which recounts the real-life case of Russ Feria, who was convicted and sentenced to prison for the murder of his wife, Betsy, largely on the testimony of Betsy's best friend, Pam Hupp. After Russ served three years in prison, evidence was found that indicted Pam Hupp of Betsy's murder, and he was exonerated and released. Even in the place of justice, there is wickedness, he finds. Even though we have many wonderful police officers, wonderful judges and lawyers, um, sometimes in the place of justice, there is wickedness. This should not be. And he goes farther. Even in the place of righteousness, there was wickedness. And this one um, starts to hit even closer to home. You can't help but think of the abuse scandals that have plagued Christian leaders, churches, entire denominations, including our own denomination, in a place where people should have found righteousness, they found that they were exploited and used and shamed. These things should not be. Even in our homes and our marriages, places intended by God to be safe places of comfort and mutual respect, even there one may find oppression and exploitation. The National Coalition Against Domestic Violence reports that one in three women and one in four men in the U.S. will experience physical violence by an intimate partner. These things should not be. As we're here, though, I should mention, if you find yourself in a home with domestic violence, we have some counselors here who have some experience in this area, and we would love for you to reach out in the safest way you know how. Maybe that's sending us an email. Maybe that's stopping to talk to someone today or dropping us a note We want to help. But the teacher takes it further. Go down to chapter 4, verse 1. He says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive, But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Is this statement too bleak for you? Do you feel like he's overstating the case? The dead are more fortunate than the living. Really? That's not the right way to think about life, bud. Uh, Derek Kidner asked if that reaction, if that's our reaction, if that's really due to our hope or more due to our complacency. You see, the teacher's voice is one of great suffering. This is echoed in the book of Job. If you know Job's story, he curses the day that he was born, wishes he had not been born. So here the teacher is asking us to do a simple but very hard thing, and that is to look, to behold the tears of the oppressed. You know, to behold something, this is more than a casual glance or a passing look. It is to really stop and look at something, to consider it. He's calling us to stop and sit with and feel the weight of what it would be like to be someone who's oppressed and has no power to change things. What would that be like? That's not a comfortable thing to consider. It's not a comfortable thing to behold. 
And we do like to be comfortable, right? I mean, if I, like honestly, if I'm scrolling through movies to watch, if I'm choosing a movie to watch, I don't get to watch that many movies. So when I get to watch a movie, I'm looking through my options. There's all these really moving films out there about serious problems in the world. And I'm usually like, yeah, maybe next week. Slide over. Nope, no thanks. I mean, there's, there's a trailer for a new film coming out with Jim Caviezel that I watched the other day who plays a government agent who leaves his job to rescue kids from human trafficking. And just watching the trailer breaks your heart that this is the reality of some kids today. So if I'm honest, there's part of me that does not want to look at that and does not want to think about what if that was my son? What if that was my daughter? I don't want to behold the tears of the oppressed because I like to be comfortable. And it's painful to think about that stuff, much less to live through it. But that is not the way of the man of sorrows. The one we follow was well acquainted with grief, the scripture says. He weeped at funerals. He was grieved at oppression. He sighed with compassion when he saw the crowds. If you want to understand life, if you want to follow Jesus, then Ecclesiastes says you must start by looking. Look and behold the tears of the oppressed. Will you? Will you look? You know, there's a lot of conversation today about what doing justice should be like in the world, how to do justice in the world. And I don't have all the answers to that. But I think we can at least say that for Christians, justice must grow out of the soil of compassion. That is the heart of Christ. Justice might be blind, but compassion looks. Compassion sees. It beholds. What would happen if we at least began to look? Look at stories like Kashi's. Kashi is from Mumbai, India. She writes, when I was five years old, I was taken from my family and sold to a man named Naresh who lived in Kolkata. I was told to do chores around the house, washing dishes, sweeping, tending to the needs of Naresh and his family. I was such a small girl. Sometimes I would get very homesick and cry, wondering when I would go home. But when I cried, they would lock me in a dark room, sometimes for an entire day, with no food or water. Every time I raised my voice or objected to my work, I was beaten into silence and I was not allowed to leave or speak to anyone outside of the family. No friends, no school, no birthdays, no life. Sometimes I would get angry and wonder, and you can hear her reflecting what the teacher said in our passage. She would say, why have I even been born? What is the purpose of my life? Some days, Naresh's brother and his sons came to the house. His sons would misbehave with me, and even though I tried to resist, the boys told me that if I tried to speak up and call for help, nobody would believe me. And they were right. Who would believe me? Who would listen to me and take my side? Around this time, I was asked if I wanted a real job. I thought this was my opportunity to leave this life behind me, so I said yes. Naresh's wife took me to a place called Songachi, which is a red light district. That day I was sold for the second time in my life. Suddenly I started crying, please let me go from here. I don't want to do this work. Hours later, I met one customer. After that, I had to meet with 15 to 20 customers every day. If I refused, I was beaten with a broomstick, a metal pipe, or anything they could find. Now, thankfully, eventually, Kashi was rescued by local police, and now she advocates for victims of human trafficking with International Justice Mission. 
but her experience is hellacious. And there are thousands more whose stories do not end like hers. Can't you see now why someone in her shoes might say something like the teacher, that death is preferable to life? And there are more stories like this, more stories of precious, innocent children terribly mistreated. Will you even dare to look? Maybe some of your stories have dark threads like this. I hope it at least helps to know that the Bible gives words to your experience. It recognizes the pain that you've endured. God sees you. God beholds your tears even if no one else ever has. They're not lost on him. But of course, all of this brings up the natural question. If God sees all this, why not do something about it? The teacher has something to say about that in verse 17, the next verse. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. There's a time for judgment, he says, that the counterweight to God allowing human autonomy and wickedness is that none of it escapes his notice. Now, we'll return to this verse at the very end, but for now, you would at least wonder, well, why isn't the time for justice right now? Why not just take people off the board as soon as they do a terrible thing? I'm sure there's a few reasons for that, but for now, the teacher just wants to highlight one. He wants to start to expose some of the roots of injustice. So the roots of injustice, second. Look with me at verses 18 to 22. He says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. Remember, fleeting. All is fleeting. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of a man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Ecclesiastes doesn't always answer all your questions, but it asks the right ones. Now, what does any of this have to do with oppression or God's timing of justice or any of that? Well, these verses that you just heard, they're a strange and abrasive answer to that question. Commentator Derek Kidner again, he says that the text answers this way because our first need is not to teach God his business, but to learn to accept the truth about ourselves, a lesson we are very slow to accept. And that truth is that we are frail, mortal creatures who will die. The comparison here of humans with beast is unflattering, to say the least, but it's important. Philip Ryken says this is not so much about our biology, but about our destiny. We're compared in terms of our mortality. To put it succinctly, we are not gods. And when we begin to think of ourselves as gods is when we begin to use and step on other people for our own ends, i.e. oppression. So God uses our mortality to test us and expose us, to show us that we might see that we are from dust, and to dust we shall return. The teacher here is quoting Genesis chapter 3. Sound familiar? We looked at this earlier this year, and it's a reminder of the curse of death that all humans live under. So his point is don't step too high. 
you are dust in the wind. And it's a deeply humbling section of Scripture. Now, of course, if you're a Christian and you read this, you start to get a little squirmy. And you're like, hey, whoa, wait a minute. What's all this about knowing whether the spirit of the man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes downward? He doesn't even mention the resurrection or any of that stuff. Like, does this guy not have any theology? He doesn't mention any of that, but that's because it's not his point. Professor Ian Provane says it's precisely here, this point in the letter of Ecclesiastes, that there's a danger for the Christian reader of Ecclesiastes. Christians know about the resurrection and look forward to the future with a firmer hope than Kohelet, the teacher, ever gives expression to. It's all too easy to think that because we thus know more than he does, we need not pay attention to what he has to say from his more limited perspective. Even though, listen, even though those who live in hope of the resurrection, however, still need to live a life between birth and death and to live it in the right spirit and in the right way. Death may not, in fact, necessarily be the end, as Kohelet allows that it might be, but it is still a significant reality that mocks our pretensions to human control of life. Death reminds us that we are dust and that we are not God. And so the call of the passage is to live and work in this world with simple joy and humility. This is the good alternative to using other people as means to our ends. Because that's how people get exploited and oppressed when those with power forget that they too are dust. One of the roots of injustice is a failure to reckon with our own creatureliness and to pretend like we have the right to run or ruin someone's life as long as it advances our own. I like how David Gibson says it. He says, part of growing up in this world or part of maturing in this world is learning to grow small. I've been reflecting lately on the layout of my grandparents' church. Uh, We buried my grandfather there about a month ago. In many traditional churches, they have this setup, you know, where there's a cemetery in the back or somewhere on the property. Have you ever been to one of these churches where there's a cemetery attached you know, to, the, to the church property? And so for generations, you have people go to church every Sunday where you pass by or at least see the graves of your grandparents, your grandma, your grandpa, your aunt, your uncle, eventually your mother and your father. And you know, your family basically has their own spaces reserved in the cemetery. So you're not just walking by any graveyard. You're walking by your graveyard. You've already got your space reserved for you. So you walk in and out of church each week, and you're reminded of of something. You're reminded of your mortality. I'm not necessarily lobbying for this. It's like a new and creative strategy for North Wake to reach more people for Jesus. But it is a powerful, formative reminder that we've somewhat lost in modern church and modern day. Comedian Woody Allen said, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Yeah. But instead of ignoring death or joking it off as a defense mechanism, Ecclesiastes wants you to take a walk through the graveyard. And to realize your place in this world as a creature. This part of the passage is a wake-up call. It exposes us. It tests us. It shows our character. 
And it should cause us to consider our lives before God and others so that when the time for judgment comes, we are prepared. So let's return to that. Chapter 3, verse 17. The restoration of justice. 317. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. These days we often balk at the idea of God's judgment, right? Many people don't like the idea of God judging the world. You know, isn't God a God of love and aren't wrath and judgment beneath him? We don't like God as a judge, usually, until we're the ones who are wronged. And then the idea of God as judge, it's a little comforting. I've told you before of a man named Emma, who's from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. He was forced to flee to Uganda with his wife and three daughters on foot during the conflict and chaos of the late 90s. Thousands of people were killed around him, his family included. And Emma said, I could never believe the gospel if it were not for the judgment of God, because I will never get justice in this world. So I would submit to you today that the doctrine of judgment, it's not just a pie-in-the-sky way of sweeping everything under the rug and hoping that it gets dealt with later kind of thing. It's deeply practical for dealing with injustice here and now. For one thing, the doctrine of one-day eternal judgment enables you to work for justice without going so far into vengeance. It keeps you from going Batman, from vigilante. The Apostle Paul teases this out in Romans 12 when he writes, Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. So a belief in the final judgment keeps you from becoming the monster that you hate. More than that, it keeps you from taking vengeance into your own hands and enables you to trust God such that you can even love your enemy and not be controlled by them any longer. Belief in a final judgment, I mean, it enables you to keep doing good even when you realize that you and I will never be able to totally eradicate injustice and oppression for this, from this world. I mean, if you think about it, the more you get involved in trying to help and serve people, the more you find that it's really complicated and there are, there are some things you will never be able to change. There will always be more tears to behold, more people to help, We'll never be able to get to it all. But if there's a judgment day, you won't throw your hands in the air and say, bah, forget about it. There's nothing we can do anyway. It's too much. I'm not, what difference am I really making? Because ultimately, you know that everything will have its day in court. So you can keep going. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there's a time for every matter and every work. So there's a time, a time for mankind to make their choices and a time for God to hold them accountable for their choices. You can run on for a long time. You can run on for a long time, as Johnny Cash hauntingly sang. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. Psalm 94, it expresses the certainty of judgment, even as the oppressed long for freedom. Listen to this. The psalmist writes, O Lord God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. 
They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He does see, he does hear, and he will bring justice. Now, it's interesting in the light of our Ecclesiastes passage where it says, Behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On their side of of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. It doesn't say the oppressed have no comfort. It says they have no one to comfort them, no person who can actually make a difference, touch them with their hands, help them. The oppressed do not need abstract comfort, but a personal touch. So Jesus, when he begins his ministry, he chooses a very interesting portion of Scripture to read from. It says he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll. And found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So for all the tears of the oppressed, there is a hand that will and will one day wipe their tears away, and give them comfort, the hand of Christ. In his name, the Christmas carol says, all oppression shall cease. In the final chapter of uh, John Stott has an excellent book called The Cross of Christ. In the last chapter of the book, he tells a story about a poor man from the slums of Brazil who climbs 2,300 feet up the mountain to the colossal statue of Christ that towers above Rio de Janeiro the Christ of Corcovado. After the difficult climb, the poor man finally reaches Jesus and says, I have climbed up to meet you, Christ, from the filthy confined quarters down there to put before you most respectfully these considerations. There are 900,000 of us down here in the slums of that splendid city. And you, do you remain here at Corcovado, surrounded by divine glory? Go down there to the favelas, Don't stay away from us. Live among us. Stott asks, what would Christ say in response to such an entreaty? Would he not say, in the suffering of the cross, I did come down to live among you, and I live among you still. Stott adds, we have to learn to climb the hill called Calvary, and from that vantage ground survey all life's tragedies. The cross does not solve the problem of suffering, but it supplies the essential perspective from which to look at it. Sometimes we picture God lounging, perhaps dozing in some celestial deck chair while the hungry millions starve to death. It is this terrible caricature of God which the cross smashes to smithereens. You see, in Jesus, in Jesus on the cross, God does get us. 
He, by his suffering with us and for us, has earned the right to talk to us. And he stretched out his hand to comfort us. And even more than his empathy, he has found a way to forgive us for our own injustices. I mean, if the world is divided into oppressed and oppressors, we are all in both camps at some level. To a certain extent, we have all been mistreated and harmed and taken advantage of by others. And to a certain extent, we have all mistreated and harmed and taken advantage of others. The crazy thing about the Christian message is not just that comfort is available for the oppressed, but that mercy is available for the oppressor. And I'm not talking about cheap grace for cheap repentance, but amazing grace that leads to a new life and a new heart. John Newton, who wrote the hymn, the hymn, Amazing Grace, he was the captain of a slave ship, a slave ship. You want to talk about oppression? He was a human trafficker. And yet, he wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He knew what he was talking about. And he was changed, deeply changed. Newton became one of the most tender and personal pastors that history has ever known if you read his letters. And he often would reflect upon his life of oppression and injustice. It seemed to come back to haunt him at times, all the things that he had done, the people he had mistreated. And so he wrote songs that took him back to the cross of Christ where he found pardon for the wrongs that he had done. Like this one. He wrote, In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never till my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. But a second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I died that thou mayest live. Thus, while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace, it seals my pardon too. So for the oppressed and for the oppressors, of which we are all both, Christ on the cross is the answer for justice and for mercy. Let's pray. So God, we thank you for even this word, which is hard to read and not pleasant to think about, but it is where we truly live. And so we thank you that you are not a God who stays far off. But in Jesus Christ, you came to live among us. You know what it's like to be human. And so today, you can offer us directly comfort in our oppression and affliction. And as God, you can offer us mercy and forgiveness for where we have oppressed and afflicted. So be our deliverer, be our hope, 
for anyone here who is crushed, be their comforter today. For anyone who is crushed by the weight of their sins, be their Savior. We pray all this in your matchless name. Amen.